Our sermon text is Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, we are in need of hearing from you this morning. As we've already sang, we would welcome your presence and we would welcome that presence through your word. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would move in our hearts. We pray that our minds would be awake to uh, the writing of Paul here in Philippians and that our hearts and our affections would be stirred for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that our eyes would be opened, and that we would see with full clarity what he has done on our behalf, and that we would see the hope that we have and the call to struggle and strive for the sake of the gospel. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Well, I have a simple question to begin with, and that is, what does the Christian life demand of us? What does the Christian life demand of us? And the answer, I think, from our text this morning is it demands a life informed and influenced by the gospel of Jesus in every single way. We're in every single area. Notice what Paul is so intent to communicate here, beginning in verse 27 of our passage. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, there's one word underlying this, um, let your manner of life command. There's only one word in the original that lies behind that phrase. And if you're reading from, say, a King James Version, I realize that you have let your conversation be um, worthy of the gospel of Christ. And, and all of that's related to this singular point. It's a word, the original word, from which we get our English word politics and all of its related forms. It carries the sense of living as a citizen somewhere, as uh, living in a particular way. So the command here is that their lives would be reflective of those who live under the kingship of Christ. It would be reflective of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. That it would be reflective of those who live under the reign and rule and government of Jesus Christ. See, that's what's so significant about 
being a Christian. And that's really one of the things we see again and again and again in the New Testament. And it caused great conflict for early Christians. It is this claim that Christ is Lord, which is to say that Christ is King. It's a claim that Jesus is Lord over every kingdom over every nation, over every country, over every person, over every power, the seen realms and the unseen realms. This is especially clear, by the way, later in the letter to the Philippians in chapter 3, verse 20, where we read Paul writing there that our citizenship, or again, if you have a King James Version, our conversation is in heaven from which we also await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason I know what the King James Version says there is because when I was um, a younger preacher um, and was unaware of translation issues, I thought conversation was a reference to how you spoke, and I used it to support a point in a sermon. But it actually is an old English word for your citizenship. It's a related term in the original. So let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel of Christ because, chapter 3, your citizenship, not will be, is in heaven. Currently, it's a bombshell claim when we think about it because the Christian's current status is as a sojourner or an alien in a foreign land. Christian citizenship is in heaven. Now, I've used this analogy once before, but I'll use it again this morning, the analogy of an embassy. That's exactly what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. See, we are citizens of heaven, citizens of the kingdom of Christ under his rule and reign. He's our leader, our Lord, our our ruler. But we also happen to have our residence in other countries. In our case, that would be, of course, the United States. While here, we live our lives in such a way that will not reflect poorly on Jesus' kingdom, which is where our citizenship lies. We just happen to be here. But we also integrate into the society we are living in. You might even think about it this way. This morning, we're gathered in the embassy. We're speaking the language of our home country. We're hearing the language of our home country. We're doing the things that are part of the culture of our home country. We're singing hymns and we're praying corporate prayers and we're spending time together around God's word. And when we go out into the world, we've left the embassy, but yet we are still bound to represent our home country well, even though our context has changed. Even though we may have to speak another language to make sense out in the world, we still are those whose citizenship belongs in heaven. And so when Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, he's really saying the same thing he says in chapter 3. Let your life be reflective of where your citizenship lies. Let's go back to verse 27 here and pick up the rest of it. So, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, remember, he doesn't know his situation completely, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. 
Notice that living as a citizen of God's kingdom, living as one who is claiming Jesus as Lord, results in a distinctive stance. He says two things here. So that you are standing firm in one spirit, and then he says, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This word translated striving side by side is a really beautiful word. In fact, we derive our English word athletics or athletes from it. The idea is it's a shared struggle that we struggle together just like athletes do in competition or in battle or whatever it is. But we are together striving for the faith of the gospel. The primary concern, though, also we notice in this passage, is for unity. Notice what he says. He says, standing, standing side by side with one mind, and then prior to that, he said, standing firm in one spirit. So this concern for unity is all over the book of Philippians. We saw it in the opening prayer in chapter 1 a few weeks ago. We see it here. We see it as we go into the next verses next week in chapter 2. And we see it in chapter 4 where Paul speaks to a couple of ladies in the church. And he says, I appeal to you to be reconciled and rejoice in the Lord. It's all over the book of Philippians. And why is that? Why is unity such a concern for Paul as he writes to these Philippian believers? That the most basic answer is because we know there is opposition within the church. Now, I want to be absolutely clear about something. Sometimes when we hear the word unity, and we talk about it a lot, and we sort of pass over it, we, we sometimes think that it means sweeping things under the rug, Right? Sometimes we even think it means peace at any cost. That we just have to figure out how to let bygones be bygones and not really deal with any conflict ever. But you'll see that's not at all what Paul has in mind here. First, I would point you to the language. Standing firm. That's a strong word. Striving. Struggling. Side by side. Sweating for the gospel. Right? Actually working for it. Later in our passage, we'll see it in verse 30 when we get there, Paul will talk about conflict, which is a related term, by the way, to this striving side by side. Paul take, talks about the same conflict that he had and that the Philippians are aware he has. And we've already talked about this. Remember, Paul has opponents. He talked about them in chapter 1 in, in the earlier parts. He says, there are people who are preaching the gospel for false motives aiming to harm me, aiming to increase my affliction. So Paul has opponents and they come in two types. First are those who also name the name of Jesus. Those who preach the gospel of Christ with false motives aiming to harm Paul. The other opposition, second type, comes from outsiders of the faith. Remember he is persecuted by political leaders. Whether they are part of the religious establishment or part of the Roman Empire, he is persecuted by them. He's in prison as he writes this letter. He's in a Roman prison because he is facing opposition. Now again, that opposition is often overlapping. Sometimes it comes in the form of those who are naming the name of Jesus, who are causing him problems, and sometimes it comes from the outside. And here's the real point. Sometimes we get so fixated on our perceived notions of opposition outside that we forget about opposition 
inside churches, inside where people name the name of Jesus. And this, for Paul, and for the whole New Testament, is considered extremely dangerous. Again, I would point you to his language. He hopes that they will stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Do you see that concern for unity? One mind, one spirit, standing together, arms linked is almost the picture he's got here. A chain of believers linked together. And as I've said, he continues the same emphasis in chapter 2 where he says, follow the example of Jesus who gave himself for us. He did not just think about his own needs, but instead became obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the implication there is that we would abandon our preferences for the sake of the gospel. He says, don't just be concerned with yourself. He says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And here he's talking about this internal struggle, this internal opposition that's causing problems. And it's necessary for him to write to the Philippians that they would be unified in one spirit and one mind. And that they would take their cues from the gospel of Jesus. Because Jesus is God in the flesh. God who has come down into time and space in order to suffer in our place. And it is that, that belief, upon which our entire faith hinges. Our entire practice hinges on that. Now, no doubt we're familiar with churches that have been torn apart by the most absurd preferences. You know, churches have split over the color of the carpet. And it's usually the choice between burgundy and blue or something like that. They've split over changing service times, right? moving decorations. I still remember one of the fiercest business meetings I've ever intended was about a curio cabinet in the corner of the sanctuary. A curio cabinet in the corner of a sanctuary, like a little glass cabinet that served no purpose other than to sort of lean forward because it was bowing. But the minutes were revealed in 1995. That curio cabinet could be moved for no special purpose. And so it had to stay from then on. Or the plaques, right? Plaques are a huge problem. Tom Rayner details this in one of his posts. Tom Rayner being the former CEO of Lifeway and now a sort of uh, a person who thinks about church revitalization, talks about the problem with plaques in churches. And, and you can go in some of these churches and you see plaques. also the things that destroy churches. And none of them are gospel issues. They're only preferences. However, they become gospel issues when they become the chief focus because they detract from the gospel. When we're more focused on a piece of furniture in the corner or a, a uh, you know, plaque on a pew, then we have lost our focus on the gospel. We're no longer living lives worthy of the gospel. In fact, those things become idols that stand in the way of the gospel. Because we bite and devour one another as elsewhere in scripture we read about. We bite and rather than being focused on the really good news that is in our possession. The gospel of Jesus. 
But Paul also tells us we shouldn't be surprised when conflict arises. Anytime we take the demands of the gospel seriously, anytime we are trying to be faithful, whether it's individually or corporately as a congregation, we can expect conflict. Anytime what is cherished is challenged, we can expect conflict. But notice what Paul says. We are to struggle together, side by side, for the faith of the gospel. This is unity. The question is not, does this meet my preference? That's the question of Paul's opponents. The question we have to ask is, are we seeking to magnify the gospel of Jesus and live in light of that gospel? Are we seeking to live in light of the gospel of Jesus and to live in light of that gospel? Live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But again, I would say to you, conflict is a regular feature of struggling for the gospel, which I think is why he uses this language of striving and struggling. Any effort to be faithful will be met with conflict. But real unity is not forged by, you know, peace at any cost, a bunch of concessions. Real unity is a result of struggling for the priority of the gospel of focusing on what really matters. See, here's the thing for our church. We can talk about church models and how to do things organizationally all day, right? And I I do that through the week with you. I I talk about this and I try to cast vision. But, But the reality is, until we are absolutely sold on struggling for the gospel, nobody will take us seriously. Monument Heights must be characterized by a seriousness, a gravity, a weight, because the gospel is so weighty and it's such good news. That's Paul's appeal here. Strive, struggle, stand firm. Now let me speak practically about this for just one moment, about a vision for our congregation. I've said from the beginning that I believe a traditional model of the church can work here in Richmond. And I believe Monument Heights is suited to that model. But I also have to say something very clearly about this. That doesn't mean nothing changes. Right? Traditional doesn't mean stuck in our ways. And traditional isn't the 1950s, 60s, 70s, 80s, or 90s. For us to do traditional well, we have to be fully in on being conformed to Scripture having the gospel clearly in focus, having it being our, our fixed, fixed attention is on the gospel, we have to be fully conformed to the historic beliefs of Christianity, for us, particularly those of our Baptist forebears who have so faithfully gone on before us. That means, by the way, we go deeper into Scripture and doctrine. We continue to press on together for the sake of the gospel. That's the whole point of this formation plan we've been talking about. That's the whole point of our intentionality in our worship service. If you notice, we take very seriously reading Scripture, public reading of Scripture. We take seriously the songs we sing and actually singing together because we don't think this is just an event. I'm not just giving a talk. We are actually here to hear God speak to us through his word. And it's not about my cleverness or me, though as a human being that's important to me. The real point of what we're doing here is being formed around scripture, being formed by the gospel, being formed by our faith so that we learn how to struggle for it together. 
That also, by the way, means when we sing, we sing with gusto. I don't think I've ever used that word, but it's a good word. We sing with vigor. We sing with all of the vigor that a congregation should be singing with when it understands the gospel. That the scope of our sin has been dealt with. And we magnify the name of Jesus. But all of that is going to require a commitment to the gospel. To the reality that Jesus died for our sins and rose again on the third day so that we might be justified before God Almighty. That is the gospel. It also means a commitment to seeing this church conform to scripture. This is a drum I've beat for the last year. And I did it during my candidacy period, my interviews. I have not changed my position on that. We continue to be conformed, continuing to go back and say, okay, let's look. What does Scripture teach about the church? What are we being called to? Maybe that needs to be adjusted. Maybe that needs to be changed. Maybe that needs to be repented of because the gospel and Scripture are calling us to something different. See, if we're not unified around those things, what will happen is we will waffle between preferences and opinions until the inevitable end. Right? We'll all have opinions. That's what I meant when I said we can talk about congregational structure. We can talk about church models. We can talk about what are the trends in society. We can do all that all day, but we're sort of going to get lost in the middle if we don't actually focus on what's important. Striving for the faith of the gospel. Look at Paul's seriousness in the next verse, verse 28. He says, when you do this, you won't be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but it's a clear sign of your salvation. And that is from God. So sharing in the struggle, facing down the conflict together, marks out the folly of those who oppose the gospel. It's a clear sign that the road they're on isn't going to lead to life and health. It's not going to lead to flourishing like we read about in Psalm 1 to open our service. It's not going to lead to that, but instead they're going to be like that chaff that is scattered by the wind because they're focused on all these things. And for those who struggle for the gospel, we're told it means their vindication and their deliverance, that God will see them through. And this is a big picture view, by the way. Sometimes the world crushes those who strive for the gospel. But again, Paul is confident that in the end, all will be set right. And again, gospel struggle results in conflict. And that conflict is a form of suffering. Look at verse 29. For it has been granted or gifted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So look at the two gifts of the church here. Faith in Christ, that's a gift from God. It has been given to you, it has been granted to you to believe in him. And then number two, to suffer for his sake. It's not something we would typically think of as a gift. Faith and suffering. Faith and conflict. This is what you've been given. Paul is prepping the Philippian believers for real opposition. He's warning them that conflict is coming, but they must struggle together for the gospel. I was talking to Chelsea a few weeks ago, and we were just talking about the nature of pastoral ministry um, and reflecting on that. I'm 
I'm closing in on finishing seven full-time uh, years in ministry, and we were talking about the work that I do in the sort of revitalization that I did six years previously and now sort of trying to do here. And, and we were talking about that, and she looked at me and she said, you really, you're signing up to pick fights with people. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's a good way of putting it. It's not really that I want to pick fights, but it's what Paul's saying here. The struggle is real, which, by the way, I have to tell you, I almost brought it in, but it would be super cheesy. My shirt for trick-or-treating with the kids is a Yoda shirt that says the struggle is real. I almost wore it this morning. But then I would be one of those like really corny pastors, so I, I decided not to do that. He is warning them that conflict is coming, but we must struggle together. And he's been an example to them. He's an example to all of us today, right? This is the, the beauty of Scripture is that while Paul is speaking to the Philippian church, he's speaking to Monument Heights as well. He's speaking to me. He's speaking to you. We've read about his conflict throughout chapter 1 where he looks at those who oppose him and, and he rejoices in the fact that the gospel's being preached. And he really says, it doesn't matter what they do to me. What matters is that the gospel's going forward. And in that, I rejoice. But he also feels the need to tell them that, look, this sort of thing can creep into your church. And if it goes unchecked, it can destroy a church, which is the whole point of chapter 2. It's kind of the whole point of that appeal to Euodia and Syntyche in chapter 4, those women who have conflict that they would learn to agree in the Lord. What he's telling us is that the conflict is just a feature of Christianity. Notice verse 30. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The gospel is costly. It carries with it opposition. Not just from the outside, but as I've said, from the inside as well. So here's what we have to take away as a church. And you'll see this on the screen. Any move toward faithfulness will be met with opposition. It will require a fierce resolve to struggle together. Any move toward faithfulness will be met with conflict. It will require steadfast fearlessness. But if we are intent on living lives informed by the gospel in every area, letting our lives be worthy of the gospel, letting our manner of living, our citizenship in even this world, letting our, our citizenship in heaven reflect in this world. If we're intent on that, this is what we're signing up for. We're signing up for a fight. And remember, Paul was speaking, as I said, to the Philippians, but let's also hear it as a word to us. Imagine Paul writing these words to Monument Heights. After all, that's what we believe about Scripture. It's not just what was said and what was meant, but what God is saying to us today. Here is our call from the Apostle Paul to struggle for the sake of the gospel. I've told you many times I'm excited about what God might do here. But I'm not blowing empty words at you with that. When I said it earlier after Cindy made her presentation, I mean I'm excited about what God might do here. I see good things that God has been doing for the last 50 years. I see good things that God's doing in many of you. And I have nothing to do with that, right? God is doing that. I truly believe we have an opportunity to be part of something exciting and amazing. But the opposition and the conflict will come. There will be those driven not by a commitment to the gospel and scripture, but by a commitment to personal preferences. 
by opinions, by traditions that are not good traditions that we've inherited, but traditions that have been man-made and created. But if we will stand together fixed on the gospel, linked side by side, not fearing the opposition, it will be a sure sign that God is at work in us. I want to tell you a story. On October 6th, which was what, four days ago, 1536, a 42-year-old man named William Tyndale was executed. His crime was opposing wayward theological tradition and translating the New Testament into the English language. Tyndale was a man who knew the cost and worth of gospel struggle. He had spent the majority of his adult life fleeing from one place to the no- another when the pressure got too hot as he was translating the New Testament and then began working on the Old Testament, which he never completed. But just before he was executed, it is said that he exclaimed with boldness, with vigor, these words, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. Open the eyes of the King of England. That's the type of resolve. Even in his martyrdom, even at his death, that is the type of resolve Paul is exhorting us to this morning. That we would be so intent on the gospel that even with our very dying breath, we would be praying that God would open the eyes of the nation that we've been struggling in. That God would open those who have not seen so that they might see. That is struggling for the gospel. Pastor Chris is coming to pray for us. Let me just invite you, if you're a believer, to heed this message and to press into the gospel, to ask God to press it into your heart this morning. If you're not a believer, I would just ask that, and you'll hear it, I think, in our prayers, that God would open your eyes. But if you have questions along the way, we're here for you on that. If you're interested in church membership, we're also here to have that discussion and talk about what it means to partner together as we try to strive side by side for the gospel. Pastor Chris. Let's pray together. Lord God, we have been here today to worship you, to experience your presence, and to hear your word. Lord, may you always help us to not just be simple hearers of your word, but to actually try to do them and to be doers. Lord, help us to respond in obedience with every challenge that you bring our way. Lord, I pray that our lives would show this world around us that Christ is truly king over everything and everyone. Lord, help us to be unified as your body as we try to allow people to get a glimpse of you through us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live our lives in a way that would bring glory and honor to you. And Lord, when we do things that hurt your name or embarrass your name, I pray you'd forgive us. Lord, please shape us and mold us through your word, through the music and the songs that we sing. 
And Lord, through the obedience that we follow through with. May we live in complete confidence for your kingdom. We understand that walking with you faithfully, Lord, will bring opposition. That it will bring us struggles. But Lord, with your help, we can and will persevere for the sake of your kingdom. Lord, as we look around, our world seems to be such a mess. Lord, it's just because they don't know any better. They just need you. Lord, may you use us to be a light for the lost. Will you help us to keep our focus truly on you and help us, Lord, to share the gospel so that people can be saved for eternity and you can bring peace to this world. Lord, help us to be faithful to this call. Help us to be better disciples. Help us to be better witnesses. And Lord, even if we struggle, please, through your spirit, draw us closer to yourself and just help us to share your love with the neighbors around us and around the world. May we honor you today, Lord, by not just hearing your word, but actually obeying it and doing what it says. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.